Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the program. My name is William Hemsworth. Great to be back with you here. I'm a, very honored to introduce my guest, Dr. John Bergsma. He's a professor of theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville and a senior fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. He's twice been voted faculty of the year by graduating classes at Franciscan. He holds three degrees in ancient languages and theology from Calvin College and seminary and a doctorate in ancient Christianity and Judaism from the University of Notre Dame. He's a specialist in the Old Testament and of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and he's published several popular and educational books on scripture and the Christian faith, as well as dozens of articles in peer-reviewed journals and essay collections. He and his wife, Dawn, and their children live in Steubenville, Ohio. Dr. Bergsman, welcome to the program. Hey, it's great to be on with you, William. Yeah, it's my pleasure to have you on. A couple of years ago, I went to see you speak in Phoenix, so that was a Oh, it was a great time. <laughs> yeah, that was a fun event. It, it really, it really was. Now, I want to talk to you today about the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've done some great work on it. You have a great book, you know, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, the early Christ, early Jewish roots of Christianity. So for our viewers and listeners who may not be familiar, can you maybe tell us what the Dead Sea Scrolls are? Sure. So the Dead Sea Scrolls are the remains of a monastic library uh, from a Jewish monastery of men uh, that flourished probably from around 150 BC to about the year uh, 70 uh, AD. Um, and uh, this was a, a monastery run by the what we call the Essene movement. Uh, it was one of the three sects of Judaism, along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They alone practiced celibacy and monasticism. And uh, again, uh, there was probably between 100 and 200 essentially monks uh, living in this uh, community on the shores of the Dead Sea, sharing a common life of, of prayer and work, aura at labora. And uh, they devoted themselves to the study of scripture and um, they, they stored their scrolls in uh, caves um, adjacent to their uh, monastic dwelling or perhaps put them there for safekeeping when they saw that they were going to be attacked by the Romans uh, sometime near the year 70. 
And uh, they were destroyed by the Romans, uh, but their library survived partially intact and uh, was discovered by some Bedouin shepherds uh, beginning around 1947. And then uh, cave after cave was discovered in the ensuing decade. And finally, uh, the remains of what once were 1,000 books written on scrolls uh, were eventually discovered. What kinds of books were found in the, among the, the scrolls in those jars? Absolutely. So about 25% of, or 250 roughly of these 1000 scrolls were copies of what we would think of as books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, etc. Um, most of the old Testament, uh, books of scripture, uh, were found there with a couple of exceptions like uh, Esther and uh, Nehemiah, uh, which were not present there. Now, the other three quarters of the scrolls uh, were all the kinds of documents that you might expect to find in a monastery library. Things like scripture commentaries, um, end times predictions, lectionaries, Uh, liturgical documents, and I think most importantly, their rule of life, what we call the community rule, which I think is the most valuable document discovered there because it uh, it gives us a picture of their theology, their worldview, their ritual practice, and their common life. And uh, that document has the most, the highest number, and also I think the most significant connections with uh, the New Testament. So what did the community believe about the Messiah? That's very interesting. Most of their documents that talk about the Messiah reflect an expectation of actually two Messiahs, a, a priestly Messiah and a royal Messiah. They termed them the Messiah of Aaron and the Messiah of Israel. That would be the priestly and the royal Messiah. However, at least one, possibly more, of the documents in their library reflected the expectation that Melchizedek was going to come back, that famous Melchizedek from Genesis 14, who was both a priest and a king, so royal and priestly, and that he was going to inaugurate uh, an, uh, an end times or an eschatological year of jubilee which was going to free people not from physical slavery and monetary debt but from slavery to satan and from the debt of sin Mm. and that's so fascinating because one of the scripture verses that they associated with melchizedek was isaiah 61 which talks about the servant of the lord being anointed with the spirit of the lord and proclaiming a year of the lord's favor and uh, liberation to captives, uh, etc. And Jesus reads that passage of Isaiah uh, 61 in Luke 4, and then proceeds to drive out Satan from a man, perform an exorcism, and then in the next chapter, forgive a man's sins with that paralytic who's lowered down from the ceiling in front of Jesus. And so Jesus was performing the actions that the Essenes expected the Melchizedek Messiah to perform at the end of time. 
And I think that's one of many reasons why Jesus's reputation spread like wildfire uh, among the, the Jews of his day. Yeah, that's fascinating. I never made that associated with Melchizedek before. I heard the two messiahs, but not the Melchizedek. Yes, yes. Now let's go to the forerunner. Um, in your book, you discuss quite a bit about John the Baptist. And, and what does, how does John the Baptist and the sacrament of baptism relate to the Dead Sea Scrolls? Sure. Well, we just mentioned, you know, they were expecting a priestly messiah and a royal. Right. And this too is how Luke in particular, but not just Luke, but again, Luke in particular introduces Jesus's ministry first with John the Baptist, who clearly has a, a very good priestly pedigree through his father, Zechariah, who's one of the higher ranking priests who's on the short list to do sacred things like burn the incense in the holy place. John comes from that line, and, um, and then later, in fact, Jesus int is introduced, who's clearly from the line of David, as we see in Luke 3. And I would argue that this is intentional, that Luke is introducing uh, for us John as a kind of priestly Messiah who is a pair with Jesus, the royal Messiah. Ah. So if you have those expectations from, from uh you know, your Essene background, say, and you pick up the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that, in fact, uh, the combined ministries of John and Jesus really meet this, uh, this expectation. Now, focusing more closely on John, uh, there's a number of reasons to believe that he was uh, formed in uh, that uh, monastic community. Uh, Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, for example, tells us that the Essenes uh, took in orphans and other young boys from the broader community and raised them in their community and, and taught them their customs and their manners. This would explain why Luke 180 says that John was out in the desert until he began his ministry. Mm -hmm. What that probably, you know, a young boy is going to die if he tries to go out into the desert, right. but this could explain him being raised by those, by those Essene monks there on the shores of the Dead Sea. Then John's diet is very peculiar. He seems to be living off the land. And Josephus again tells us that, that that's what monks did who were kicked out of the community because they took a vow to eat only food prepared in the community when they joined the order. And thus when they were excommunicated, that left them with nothing but naturally occurring food like grass or in the case of John, grasshoppers and honey, etc. To eat, uh, to eat with. So John looks like he is living off the land for some special reason. Again, that would be because he was kicked out of the group. And then John places a great emphasis on water washing for purity and also the coming of the Holy Spirit. That, those are rather peculiar doctrines that uh, were not characteristic of the Sadducees or the Pharisees, but the Dead Sea Scrolls do a lot with that. Uh, the monks washed daily, in fact, and thought that their sins were forgiven by the Holy Spirit with their ritual washing. They had 10 ritual pools. We would think of them as baptismals in the Qumran community that we found archaeologically. It's the highest concentration of ritual baths. In Hebrew, these are called mikvaot. But anyway, highest concentration of ritual baths or baptismals of any archaeological uh, location from this time period. 
So, uh, and, and then John ministers uh, along the Jordan River, only a half a day's walk from, from Qumran, from, from the monastery. So there's all of these connections, the you know, geographical connections, theological connections, connections of ritual practice, et cetera, between John and Qumran. I think that there are too many to be a coincidence, even down to John's life verse, because when he's challenged about his identity, he identifies himself with Isaiah 40, verse 3. I am the voice of one crying in the uh, crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And that's also the verse that the Essenes uh, uh, cite uh, when they explain why they are in the wilderness, um, you know, preparing for the coming of the Messiah. And, and no other Jewish group at this time is doing anything with Isaiah 40, verse 3. So it, it's, again, too close to be coincidence, in, in my opinion. John had to have some connection. I think the most plausible explanation is he was raised there, left or was kicked out in order to preach to a broader audience. And he goes up to the Jordan River to the fords of Jericho, where he's got a huge audience there crossing from all parts of the empire. And, and he preaches very effectively. So one more question about John. Um, of course, we're all familiar with Herod Antipas and his marriage to Herodias in Mark 618. How do, how do the scrolls give us a better idea of what is happening in that story? So fascinating because the scrolls prohibit, prohibit Herod's uh, marriage in, in two ways. First of all, um, the Essenes prohibited divorce and remarriage. Uh, they criticized anybody who had more than one wife in their lifetimes. Mm -hmm. So they were very strict monogamists. Secondly, they also uh, prohibited uncle-niece marriages, and that's what this marriage was. So on two counts, this would have been considered illicit from an Essene perspective. And uh, in, so it's unsurprising that John the Baptist really roundly criticizes this uh, royal marriage in which uh, both, uh, in this case, the royal husband and, uh, and his princess bride, so to speak, had divorced previous spouses, and then married each other, even though they were uh, uncle and niece. Wow. Yeah, that, that's such a big, such a broader background, better understanding when you have the understanding. So that was fascinating when I saw that in your book. Indeed. Uh, you know, and John the Baptist ends up being very much like a Thomas More figure, you know, who right. ends up literally beheaded because he criticizes a royal marriage. It's, it's, and, yeah. and, and more wore a hair shirt under his, you know, uh, uh, official uh, garments. And uh, so the, the connection between the two is uncanny. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Now, I'm going to move on to another John for a moment. In your book, you discuss um, how the Gospel of John was influenced by Essene language and worldview. Can you elaborate on that for us? Yes, um, the, the discovery of the scrolls really revolutionized Johannine scholarship because prior to the discovery of the scrolls, uh, the reigning opinion was that the, the, the Gospel of John was a very late Christian document, perhaps from the 2nd right. or even the 3rd century AD, long after the lifetime of the apostles, obviously not written by an apostle and uh, influenced by a, a form of Greek philosophy that is uh, uh, sometimes called uh, Neoplatonism. And this was how some of the peculiar language of the Gospel of John and also its peculiar, what we call dualism, it's kind of stark uh, us versus them, black versus white, light versus darkness, 
perspective on reality. Uh, again, this was uh, explained by an appeal to uh, uh, the influence of certain kinds of mystic Greek philosophy that only arose uh, after the beginnings of Christianity. Now, when the scrolls were discovered, many of the phrases and the images and the, the attitudes in the Gospel of John that previously had thought to be had been thought to be late and in and, and Greek and influenced by streams of Greek philosophy were found to be present in the Dead Sea Scrolls and thus Jewish and pre-Christian because some of the documents that had common language with the Gospel of John, things like spirit of truth and spirit of falsehood, yeah. things like sons of light and sons of darkness, language like that, those, those terms, those phrases were found in, for example, the community rule of Qumran, which dates as early as 100 BC. So a good, say, 100 and, you know, 100 and a half years or so before uh, the ministry of Jesus and the, the, the beginnings of the church and the ministry of the apostles, etc. So this language, again, up to a century before the birth of Christ, we have this, this language that was thought to be peculiar to the Gospel of John because it's not found in other ancient, uh, ancient uh, literature. So, again, this revolutionized people's perspective on the Gospel of John, and, and it brought the, the consensus dating of the Gospel of John down into the first century again, and within the lifetime of the Apostle John. Now, it did not convince all secular scholars that John had written the Gospel of John, but it really forced scholarship to place it within a time frame that it, it, it then became reasonable to say that, yes, John the Apostle is a potential author of, uh, of this work. And, of course, we, you know, as, as traditional Christians, we believe that by faith. But, but this provided um, you know, scholarly resources to argue the case. Now, Dr. Bergson, for those that maybe don't know, why is that so important that we know that the Gospel of John is dated in the first century? Yes, for, uh, for, for many reasons, but a primary would, one would be what we call the high Christology of the Gospel of John. The fact that Jesus' divinity is very clear and even explicit in the Gospel of John, what, what, for, for example, the, the, the uh, arguably the narrative climax of the Gospel is in John 20, when, when Thomas falls to the ground and says, my Lord and my God before the risen Christ. That's kind of the climax of a trajectory of, of gradual realization of who Jesus really is that, that, that progresses throughout the narrative. Um, now, if, if you say that that's a second or a third century document, then what you're saying is, oh, Jesus' divinity is, is a Christian teaching that is not, you know, part of the ministry of the historical Jesus, but is something that grew in a quasi-legendary way uh, over the generations of Christianity. But if you date the Gospel of John within the first century, then you have to associate Jesus, the, the clear acknowledgement of his divinity uh, either to Jesus himself or at, or at least to the lifetime of those who knew him. Yes. 
And, and then it, it becomes a much stronger claim. And then you have to grapple with the possibility that Jesus truly presented himself as divine to his own followers. And, and that's something that non-Christian scholarship uh, really struggles and does not want to concede or admit. Yeah, it's absolutely huge that the Dead Sea Scrolls helped to do that. Yes. Now, the scrolls also have a fascinating account of what kind of looks like a Last Supper. So how does that narrative relate to what we know as the Eucharist today? You know, absolutely. In, in, in so many ways, um, you know, just for the sake of our, our listeners, um, they should be aware that these Essene monks uh, on the shores of the Dead Sea uh, practiced a, a daily meal of bread and wine at yeah. noon every day. And this meal was celebrated in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. And they believed that when the Messiah came, he would share this meal with him, with them. And in fact, the two the, the priestly Messiah would lead the meal and the royal Messiah would participate with them in this meal. It was a foretaste for them of what we call the Messianic banquet, the great meal with God that's prophesied in, uh, in Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc. So, Having having laid that down, you know, it's so fascinating to read in the scrolls about how they celebrated this meal, this, this messianic anticipatory meal. You know, it had to be led by a priest. It consisted of bread and wine. It began with the priest reaching out and blessing the elements of the bread and wine. And then everyone had to sit by rank uh, to participate in the meal. Um, and, and then they, they did so in a liturgical fashion. I mean, this was, this was a sacred occasion that proceeded in a very orderly uh, way, according to uh, like what we would think of as liturgical rubrics, had to be uh, celebrated in, in a solemn manner. Now, when you look at the account of the Last Supper, you see this. You see, first of all, Jesus reaching out his hand first to take the elements and to bless them. And for many of the disciples, that would have been understood as a priestly act, because for the Essenes, it was the priest who, who reached out and blessed the elements and initiated these kind of sacred meals. And then we also observe, for example, in Luke, the disciples jockeying for position at the Last Supper. And this makes sense in light of the fact that one had to sit by their rank in the community when these sacred meals were celebrated, according to the Essenes. So they were probably trying to sit around the Last Supper table by seniority, but of course there was dissent and lack of clarity about, you know, what that order of seniority was uh, among the disciples. And it becomes the, the occasion for our Lord to teach on authority within the community uh, of, of the church. So, uh, you know, I, again, it sheds, uh, I think, a great deal of light on the Last Supper shows us that the Last Supper was not some casual memorial meal to remember Jesus by, but was in fact a liturgical occasion, a solemn occasion um, that would have been intended by Jesus as well as understood by the disciples as, uh, uh, well, either a foretaste of the Messianic banquet, but then when Jesus begins to speak about being in his flesh and his blood and instructing them to do this until he returns again, 
it dawns on him, uh, dawns on the disciples. No, this in fact is the uh, the messianic banquet because Jesus uh, uh, identifies it as the new covenant. Right. Uh, which uh, which by the way, the Essenes thought that they already had. Other Jews said, no, the new covenant hasn't come yet. Jesus says, I am instituting it now. Yeah, and along, a lot, kind of a, along a similar line, in the scrolls, there's this interesting figure known as the teacher of righteousness. Mm-hmm. Who, who, who would this individual be? Yeah, or, yeah. So a lot of the scrolls uh, speak about this teacher of righteousness and speak of him with great affection. And likewise, the teacher of righteousness appears to be the author of some of their main documents, including their hymn book, for example, which is no small uh, thing. Right. Um, the, 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 the dominant view among scroll scholars, you know, and, and, and you know, as an aside, uh, it, it's not always wise to simply accept a view because it's a dominant or consensus view among scholars. I mean, I recommend that people exercise some skepticism about scholarly consensus. But in this case, uh, I think there's a sound basis for it. And I agree with this consensus. Okay. Uh, the teacher of righteousness is believed to be the high priest who was kicked out of office by the Maccabees around the year 150 BC. This is a little known incident in Jewish history. Uh, it, it usually is, is kind of passed over, but this is fact. The Maccabees pushed out the high priest, again, around the year 150 BC, and the Maccabean king, who at that time was Jonathan Aphis, uh, took over both the kingship and the high priesthood. And so the high priests that we see functioning in the Gospels, like Annas and Caiaphas, they are not legitimate. They don't have the proper bloodline. They are actually descendants of the Maccabees, uh, who, again, uh, illegitimately took over the high priesthood by a political move uh, around 150 BC. Now, what happened to a legitimate high priest? Most scholars believe that he went into a kind of internal exile and went down to this Essene monastery and reorganized the community and kind of refounded them, uh, rewrote some of their documents, etc., helped them to clean up their theology. After all, uh, the, the Essenes didn't have a lot of, you know, what we would think of as like professional scholars or clergymen among their membership, but he brought a real, um, you know, uh, a real theological mind, you know, kind of, you know, an ancient Ratzinger, if you will, uh, and and it, it really, really helped them out to, to found their theology, their liturgy, all of this stuff, and, and set it on a new and more solid uh, footing. And uh, they 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 speak of him fondly in their uh, in their writings as as kind of a a second founder of their movement. Okay. So, Doctor Bergsma, I know we've really just scratched the surface of the Dead Sea Scrolls, of course. But in your estimation, why would it be wise for Christians to maybe just have a even a working knowledge of what the Dead Sea Scrolls are? Sure. I wrote my book. <laughs> Excuse me. Sure. <clears throat> Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, because um, although there's there's been many books like mine written before that have similar titles, almost identical titles in some cases, 
I, I bought all of those books, literally. Okay. I have a whole bookshelf full of books entitled something like, you know, the early church in the Dead Sea Scrolls right. or Jesus in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And none of them were accessible to lay people. Uh, almost every one was written not really for Christians generally or people that are going to show up for mass or for worship on a Sunday, but they were written for other scholars and they were simply essaying collections, I would say essay collections from some, you know, high, highfalutin scholar at some Ivy League school who gathered all the essays that he ever wrote about, you know, somehow pertinent and then gave it a catchy title. And what I wanted to do with this book was present the best stuff from the scrolls that is related to Christianity and really impacts Christians in terms of their worship, their prayer, and their understanding of the New Testament. And I, you know, as I tried to do that, I, you know, the reader can judge how successful I was. But, you know, what, what I see as the main relevance of the scrolls to uh, contemporary Christians is in terms of understanding several key episodes from the Gospels that without the scrolls are kind of befuddling or even uh, confusing. That for one. And then secondly, showing how the scrolls shed light on the Gospels and the epistles of Paul and show that some of the odd cultural practices and historical references that we have in the Gospels and in the epistles are actually explicable and historical and datable to the first century because we can, we can explain them in light of the scrolls, which are contemporary documents. And so the scrolls give us a lot more confidence about the dating and the authenticity of the New Testament documents to the first century that, yeah, the epistles of Paul and the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, these are not documents that come from a generation, two generations later. These are documents that reflect real Jewish life, Jewish thought, Jewish worldview from the time of Jesus and the time of the apostles. And we can verify that because we can authenticate these phrases, these ideas, these thoughts, these practices to documents that were pen on paper during the lifetime of Jesus and the apostles. So again, I think this not only helps us to understand our own faith better, but also have confidence that our own faith is authentic and stems from the time period that it claims for itself. Our guests have been Dr. John Bergsma. We've been talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dr. Bergsma, can you give our listeners and viewers uh, your website and maybe what you have um, going on in the next few months? I know you're, you do some pilgrimages and various other things as well. Sure. Absolutely. So uh, if you look for catholicbibleteacher.com, again, that's catholicbibleteacher.com, all one word, all lowercase. It will redirect to my website, which is johnbergsma.com, but Bergsma is hard to remember how to spell. Okay, so again, catholicbibleteacher.com. Go to my website. Um, I am taking a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. We're going to go to Qumran. We're going to go to Nazareth. We're going to go to Bethlehem. We're going to retrace the steps of the Lord and see the, the Dead Sea Scrolls community. We're going to see the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves up at the Shrine of the Book. 
in Jerusalem, and that's going to be June 20th through 30th of 2022. Uh, so people can sign up, can get the uh, sign-up sheet and the, the registration form off of my website for that. Um, also on the website, you can go to my online store and uh, check out some of my latest books. I uh, recently came out with one, Jesus and the Old Testament Roots of the Priesthood. That's about uh, priesthood, uh, both the common priesthood and the ministerial priesthood in the Catholic life, um, as well as, you know, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, or my introduction to the Old Testament that I wrote with Brant Petrie. Those are all available there, as well as a bunch of audio products, a bunch of uh, talks on CD and MP3 that folks can uh, pick up. Uh, so yeah, some great stuff has come out recently and more stuff is coming out soon. Great. Well, Dr. Bergsman, we thank you for your time today. Thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Great to be on with you, William. All right. God bless you. This is Kevin O'Brien of EWTN's Theater of the Word. I'm excited also to teach middle school and high school literature, speech, and drama with homeschoolconnections.com, an online Catholic curriculum provider. Your student can meet with me online for a live, interactive class. Whether you take apologetics with John Martinoni or grade school with Jackie De La Viaga or any of the other 400-plus courses with homeschoolconnections.com, online Catholic learning for your homeschooling family is available for you.